Welcome to me and my team and the news on this third full week of March. I'm Tim. I'm Ben. And it's been a busy week with news and and tragedies and things that have happened. Let's talk personal life a little bit first. Benjamin, your new soccer team just had their first games this weekend. How'd that go? Eh, it went pretty well. It's kind of weird with all like COVID restrictions and stuff. Yeah. No big group hugs or anything. No kissing the other players. Yeah. <laughs> we wouldn't do that normally, but yeah. Yeah, special restrictions like that, sure. Uh, but it was good to be outdoors, I can say, on the sidelines. Even though it was in the 30s in the morning and the 60s in the afternoon, it was good to be outdoors and feeling a little bit like normal life is returning. Uh, and that seems to be the track we're all kind of feeling like, hey, it's on the horizon. We may get there soon. Yeah, I think that's definitely a feeling of the general public. But, I mean, that doesn't mean we can immediately lift restrictions. I mean, we don't have a majority of the adult population vaccinated. I think it's somewhere around, like, 20%. Well, you know, I think that, that definitely we're getting there. And the specifics and the right way to do it, the wrong way to do it, I think no matter what we see in this country, we are very much on track. Uh, and it just kind of feels good to have a little bit of uh, almost euphoria over, hey, look, there's a light at the end of this very, very long tunnel. Uh, you may have seen the news about the spring break uh, Florida news. Have you seen anything about that? Yeah, apparently there have been over like a thousand arrests in Miami Beach because so, none of the spring breakers are following any COVID rules at all. So when you've seen stories, has that been the focus, the COVID rules? Um, Yeah, that mostly. And the fact that there are a bunch of people gathering in one town from all over the country and none of them are, you know, social distancing or wearing any masks. Well, have you seen any media coverage of the large fights that have happened? No. Of the restaurants that where large groups would gather, start a fight and then all leave without paying? Nope. Of the chaos happening in some of the streets from the parties that are going on? I did hear about that. Yeah. Apparently, for some reason, they're partying extra hard this year. Yes. Well, the reason I bring that up is, like you, the first thing I saw was this initial statement from the city of like, hey, they're breaking COVID rules. we got to shut it down for COVID. But in recent days, it's been more about the amount of fighting and, and law breaking that's sort of going on by, well, people who are think that partying involves heavy drinking and violence. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's a lesson for us to look at whether we take officials at their word initially for the motivations behind things. Because sure, you could look at there being COVID violations, but I don't think that people not wearing their masks has been the driving force be behind trying to shut down what's been happening so far in Miami on spring break. We'll see what happens when it goes to other cities. Uh, the other big stories going on, and of course there have been many, the tragic stories of the two now mass shootings we've had in the last week, the 
shootings at the multiple uh, massage places around the Atlanta area, and then the shooting of 10 people, well, the deaths of 10 people in a shooting at a grocery store in Boulder, Colorado. Um, these stories used to be extremely rare, but in the last 20 years or so, they have certainly been more widespread. What do you think when you see stories like this? Well, first of all, it's <clears throat> definitely a tragedy. I mean, I don't think there's any denying that. And, you know, every time there's a mass shooting, I think it always raises the issue of, you know, gun control and how we deal with these kinds of things. I mean, with the Atlanta shooting... The guy who carried out the shooting bought the gun that he used the very same day because there was no wait period or background check. You think that would have made a difference? Mm, I think it probably would have helped. Maybe. It, it's a curious thing with gun control because there's so many layers to it and it's so hard to look beyond gun or no gun. Um, but in any coverage you've seen. I've not seen the kinds of guns used in these shootings, have you? Um, I don't know about the Colorado one, but the Florida one, I think... Georgia. Sorry, Georgia. I think it was just like a regular old handgun. Yeah. Most of the restrictions on guns are generally targeted around automatic weapons and rapid-fire uh, military-style guns that were banned for a long time, but those bans expired in the mid-2000s, and that's been much of the fight, but it is a question as to whether those can, particular rules would have an impact, um, you know, for the media, when the media talks about guns, and I say this as someone in the media for 20 plus years, uh, most of us are not gun experts. Most of us could not tell you the difference between a machine gun and a semi-automatic or a a rifle and a shotgun. Um, I mean, I know some of those things because I've covered it over the years. But it becomes very tricky to suddenly try to navigate this from a media world when the people who are most interested in this know everything there is to know about guns and, you know, will point out, hey, you don't know what you're talking about if you don't know what you're talking about. But very clearly a big debate going on. Um, let me ask you this, because uh, the, the first famous sort of mass shooting in the modern area, the Columbine shooting, also covered by my former colleagues, uh, many of whom worked at a sister station I was at, at KUSA in Denver. Um, that school shooting carried live on television. The shooting wasn't carried live, but what was happening was carried live on television, seen around the nation and around the world. Mm -hmm. Since then, you know, there have been countless other mass shootings, but when I was in school, which was before Columbine, never would have conceived of a shooting at my school. Um, you've grown up in an era, you were born long after that, and your entire life, that's been something that's been a threat, a possibility, something you've trained for? Well, it's definitely always been a possibility, as evidenced by now and Almost every public high school, there are fun things like metal detectors and security guards, which I don't think you had that back when you went to high school, right? Uh, we did, and some schools did. I mean, but they were more concerned about 
kids fighting uh, than they were about somebody shooting lots of people. We had tornado drills. Uh, when you were in grade school, did you have any active shooter drills? Um, we had like, like a shelter-in-place lockdown kind of thing. Yeah. But that's like for all emergencies where there's an intruder in the school. Not right. always being a shooter, but that's probably the main purpose of it. Uh, so can you go back in your mind to the last time you went through one of those uh, drills? And uh, what is it? Did it do anything or did it make you think about the possibility of what would happen if there were an active shooter in your school? It definitely made me think about it. I think the last time I did one was, I think, eighth grade. Yeah. But yeah, it kind of made me think about it, but I never really considered that there'd be a very real possibility. Yeah. Well, things, fortunately, so far, they've been far away, uh, so to speak. Um, but I've just, it's one of the, the great questions I have of how different it is growing up in a world after mass shootings have become common uh, at schools after 9 11 security measures and how things have changed from when I was a kid, when, you know, every door to my school was wide open. And of course, anybody would come in and, and check in whenever, um, you know, not having to turn school secretaries into security guards, so to speak, and have all these elaborate systems. But it's just a fascinating topic for me. You know, one thing I do want to talk about today is the Colorado shooting. In case you're curious, have you ever wondered what it's like for the media to cover one of these events? Uh, yeah, I mean, the media has to rely pretty heavily on what the police department will tell them, right? So if the police department's not willing to talk, then the media can't do a whole lot. Well, that's partly true. I mean, that is the first main source of information. And part of the reason for that is, um, you know, police departments are accessible generally to reporters. They work with them all the time. And you know that if you're talking to a police department, you're probably getting the facts of what's happening from somebody who has a bigger picture idea. They've talked to all the witnesses. If you talk to one person who says they're a witness, it can be very hard to say for sure, okay, is this witness credible? Um, I can tell you that one of the things that happens when there are shootings uh, that get a lot of coverage there are people who will pretend they saw the shooting in order to drive home a political point or just to get attention. Um, so if you only talk to one person who says they saw it, it's very hard to know for sure that they did. And then even if they're being honest that they saw the full picture, uh, meanwhile, police have talked to all the witnesses and can say with a much broader view, okay, here's what we know, here's what's happening. The other part of it is that in a crime like this, the media, journalists, don't want to hamper an honest investigation. You know, if you get in the way and because we don't know what, everything that is going on and start reporting things that might get in the way of investigators making an arrest or finding information, well, that would be counterproductive to our general mission of keeping the world informed while making the world a better place. Let me tell you a little bit about what it's like inside the newsroom and how we would prepare to handle 
mass shootings and how we would prepare to deal with big breaking stories like this and, and work with law enforcement. So the first thing is, you know, there's this myth that's kind of out there that news people are breathless and excited about big breaking news and tragedies like this. And it's really not true. Uh, what does happen is there is the adrenaline that comes along with knowing something big is happening, but it's more like an adrenaline that comes from getting ready for battle or getting ready for something that you have to deal with of major consequence right away and be on edge for, as opposed to being excited. Kind of uh, like a jump it. scare almost. Um, yeah. Yeah. A little bit, you know, it's, it's like very heightened alert, heightened awareness and, Oh, this is it. And we know that a lot's riding on the media, you know, especially a, a TV station doing live nonstop coverage when something like this happens. And it's not just the, the reporters and the anchors and the producers and the crews in the field. It's their reputation. And it's also knowing that they're responsible for public safety, like when a tornado is happening, you know, they're knowing right then it's the most important thing they do is keep the public safe. Um, and so in that moment, it's like, and it's live, like there's no going back and editing it or second guessing it or redoing it. It's, hey, we're on. So there's breathlessness for sure, but it comes from the adrenaline of it happening then. So when we would train for these and it would begin to happen, you know, something like the mass shooting in Colorado at the grocery store, you'll hear it on the scanners. You'll know immediately something big is going on. You'll start seeing social media coming from people who are witnesses who are getting out things on Twitter, neighbors, people hearing things and whatever. And immediately uh, you'll send crews on the way. Your own crews, if you are in a large market like uh, Denver or KUSA, they'll send up a helicopter. Uh, the helicopters are fewer than they used to be because they are very expensive to maintain, but they are the fastest, best way to cover a big shooting, uh, a big police scene to get up there. And as soon as you know something is happening, you know, you get on television and you have your anchors talking over what in the beginning, and this is really, really a tricky part, because as it's unfolding, you don't have a lot of confirmed information, but you are continuously on live television. So you might only know four facts, you know, that something has happened. Here's where it happened at. We're hearing there were gunshots and uh, we have crews on the way. That's kind of all you got. So where that becomes very dangerous is it's natural to try to start to say other things that maybe aren't confirmed or that become speculation. Um, one of the biggest ones in a mass shooting like this that'll come up very quickly, even after one person's been apprehended, is a question of, is there a second shooter? Because police will tell you and they're trained to say they're making sure there isn't a second shooter so that they're examining the possibility they're searching for a possible second shooter. If you say that wrong or report it wrong in the beginning of the story, it leads people to believe that there is a second shooter when there rarely, rarely is. So all those things are going on and trained for in the media and it executes it well or poorly at various times. Then as the story goes on and we start to figure out, okay, this is happening. It's for real. Uh, the immediate event is kind of over, like the shooting has stopped and they've caught somebody. Uh, there is immense pressure to know who did this and why. Uh, you know, you're still on live television continuously for something like this, 24 or 48 straight hours sometimes, trying to get all this information to people. 
And that's a very dicey place to be because, A, you'll want to jump to conclusions um, and you'll want to be able to sort of figure out, well, is that real or not? And in the Atlanta shootings, it's a case of, did he target people based off their ethnicity? In uh, the Colorado shooting, the suspect's name when it was released, it's a, a name that would generally be considered a, a name of Arab descent. So does that jump right to, is there a motive here? Why has this happened? Is this terrorism? Is this an individual who just was shooting anybody who could have been anybody? You know, all those things are important in understanding motive and stopping things, but they're all very hard to figure out with any certainty four hours after a shooting has happened. And that's where speculation gets extremely hard. And especially now, because there are so many sources for that news, that you'll see other social media outlets will speculate, especially if they have any partisan reason to. And once the narrative gets out there, it can be very hard to, to undo it, to say, no, we speculated that maybe this was led to by this motive, which was race or robbery or whatever. And when you find out through a thorough investigation, oh no, the motive was something else, you almost can't put that back uh, in the bottle, so to speak, put the genie back in the bottle, it's out there. So these days, uh, when you're thinking about what it's like for the media today, right now, as we're talking in Colorado, you're having journalists who have been on the air uh, round the clock, who are dealing with incredible levels of adrenaline and stress and tragedy. I mean, you know, they're on the scene. They're talking to people who knew these 10 people who died. It's very, very traumatic to cover at a time when they're also in high stress and being judged their own performance against um, competitors and whatever preconceived notions people bring about the media and trying to get the news out there. So it's a, it's a very difficult time for the entire community. It's a very difficult time in media. Um, but I hope that gives you some kind of idea a little bit about what goes on in the media when these things are happening. Yeah, so one quick question. Yes. When you're waiting for all the facts, but you're still on air, what do you do? Do you just, like, stand around and repeat yourself? That's, uh, yeah, roughly. And you try to do things like you get a map made, and so you can call up a map and talk about the area. And luckily, you're lucky if you happen to have anchors on air who know that area very well, you know, who have lived in the community a long time. And they can say, for example, oh, this shopping center... You may know it. it's off of this road. It's near all these other things. It's uh, very popular this time of day. Um, all those kinds of facts. And then in the background, somebody will be doing things, very things like that. We'll be looking up information about the store. What can they find publicly? Can they figure out, you know, data or things that just give the anchor something to say? They'll probably start talking about other mass shootings a little bit and the history of them, you know. Colorado, in addition to having the Columbine shootings, also had that movie theater shooting uh, maybe around 2014. And so Denver, the greater Denver area, um, really has seen a lot of tragedy like this. So, you know, you might start talking about some of those things and you got to just keep going over. Here's what we know. Here's what we know. Here's what we don't know. Here's what we're asking to try to find out. So, yeah, but that's a very dangerous spot because it's really easy for speculation to creep in. And it's really easy to get fooled in the early moments 
by bad information or by witnesses speculating. Like, you know, you talk to somebody who heard the, the shooting, you know, and you might talk to them live on TV and they might throw, start throwing out their own theories about what happened. Um, and, and that can be very difficult to, to deal with as a journalist. So what other questions do you have when you see these, these mass shootings? What are the things that you see that you're curious about? Well, you know, everyone wants to know as much information as possible, as quickly as possible, but what if you never find out anything? Like, what if the shooter mm -hmm. takes his own life? What if you just don't have a whole lot to go on and the police aren't really being that helpful? Then what do you do when you have literally nothing? Well, we've had cases like this. Um, you know, typically once you figure out where the shooter has taken his own life, the first thing you do is try to learn about him. And what does everybody do? Well, they figure out, okay, does he have a Facebook page? And what can I find about that? And then the question comes up, you find a Facebook page, you're sure it's that person's. Is it fair to just start showing it? To start talking about what's on it, what other people have posted? Um, how do you vet that it is theirs without knowing from an official source, from investigators, that this is the person? Um, one thing that happens not in the media as much, but it has happened in the media, but among amateur detectives, if you go on you know, some of the sites, they'll start to put together, okay, we've got a name for the suspect, and they'll go and say, it must be this person, here's all the information about them. Sometimes you come to find out later, oh no, that was just a guy with the same name who maybe lived in the same town. And there have been innocent people hurt because they were misidentified as suspects of big shootings in that immediate aftermath. Um, and it's happened, you know, media outlets have done this, but it's, it's almost common for people who aren't getting that information from the media because the media wants to be sure to go find it somewhere else where people are not being sure and careful. And so therefore they can end up with the wrong information and sometimes the right information. Uh, then what you do is, well, if you know the person, you get their address, you send people over there, you try to figure out, you know, is there anybody else who lives there? Well, can you talk to them? Are there neighbors? And that's really tricky because you don't know where else to go. So you talk to neighbors, uh, but people don't know their neighbors the way they used to anymore. So you might get good information. You might get information from somebody who never actually had a conversation with the person, but you know, wave to them once in a while in the driveway. Does that really tell you anything about the person? It's very hard. Uh, and it's very hard to get that kind of information. Um, and to do it in a responsible and accurate way while satisfying the very real need of people to know why did this happen. Yeah, that's, it's always, do you think there's any story that's harder to cover than big mass shootings like this? Like, is there really any story mm. that's more emotionally and factually more difficult than that? Or is like mass shooting, like, is that like the boss level? Is that like the one thing you never hope you have to do because mm -hmm. it's really hard and also it's a tragedy? You know, uh, it is obviously really difficult to cover a big shooting. In some sense, when it's a large shooting like this because they've happened, I don't want to say you become desensitized to it, but you can categorize it a little bit as though you were covering war um, or something that, you know, just has a meaning of its own. And you can say, okay, these things happen. This is how they happen. I think for me and for a lot of journalists, 
What might even be tougher are, are covering when terrible things happen to children. You know, I've covered my share of stories where there was a, an Amber Alert or an abduction and a children was a child was killed. Um, and those are very difficult. I actually know somebody who was covering as a reporter a, a child, a uh, missing child, and they were looking in this wooded area and the reporter actually stumbled on the child's body. You oh, know, boy. Those stories, I think, are traumatic to deal with as well. There is some training for journalists to help prepare them for that. Um, I think there's more training for law enforcement, who obviously are much closer to those trauma than, than journalists tend to be. But any story where you know, the victims are innocent are sort of the worst. Um, and especially when it involves children, I'd say have been the ones that have been the hardest for most of us to deal with, I think. Hmm. Wow. I get that these stories are really heavy, but I guess because I've never really been to one up close, I don't, I can't really speak on, you know, how hard it is for the people there. Especially yeah. with stuff like mass shootings and all this horrible stuff. Yeah. But. Let me ask uh, one other question to go back to the Atlanta shooting. Uh, a lot of the controversy I've seen is a question of whether it's a hate crime. Have you noticed that or considered that? I mean, it's definitely a possibility considering like six of the seven or eight women were eight of Asian descent. Why do you... And, you know, but figuring out if it's a hate crime or not, again, it's very hard. So, what difference do you think it makes? Um, well, it makes some difference. I mean, based on the motives of racism especially, like, what does this say about this particular area, per se? Or what does this say about this person? You know, it just can categorize the shooting in a different light based on the motive. Well, I guess that's true. From a legal perspective, you know, typically hate crimes ha have come across with the harsher penalties. Although, I assume, I should look this up, that, you know, the shooting suspect here would be eligible for the death penalty, whether or not it was a crime. And so it's not like you can execute him more than once. Um, but there also, of course, was some controversy over the statements that a deputy, uh, well, maybe it wasn't a deputy, I forget his rank, initially made in the first news conference about him having a bad day and that sort of thing. I've, I've wondered because when we see something like this, and we know who the shooter is right away, it's almost like it's the story has closed before we've had time to emotionally process it. So we move kind of to the next thing. We need something to be emotionally thinking about this story in a way. And whether it's a hate crime or not, there are, you know, real things like acknowledging the violence that happens against minorities of, of every kind um, that are based on ethnicity. But there are also real 
things that I would think in a case like this, a prosecutor would have to deal with. It wouldn't be hard at this point for the prosecutors to prove that the suspect here did kill all these people. It may be very, very difficult at trial to prove why he killed them if he's prosecuting it as a hate crime. And I can see that being how the prosecutor's thinking about it. But the world is thinking about it in terms of recognition of potential racism involved. I think that that would be something that is likely in this case. And recognition for all those who feel emotionally harmed alongside the victims. I mean, it's very different kind of harm, so to speak, but who have dealt with racism in this country and around the world to say that, yes, we recognize it. There's some sort of, I don't know that catharsis is the right word, but recognition, I think, is. Though, in my view, as I've seen the media cover this, once we got, okay, here's a shooter, here's what he did, here's where he went, here's where he shot, here's some background on him, and some questionable headlines around, not really quite justification of the shooter, but talking about motive, um, the predominant question has been the criticism over why isn't this charged as a hate crime already? And I don't know that I've seen a lot of good media coverage of that angle and the consequences of it. But that is, could also just be because I, well, I haven't seen everything. Let's talk about a few other things that have been happening in the news. Let's, let's, let's stop talking about the mass shootings for a minute. Um, you know, you are a, a teenage boy. Have you spent much time paying attention to the NCAA men's basketball tournament? Not really. Basketball has never really been my thing. Yeah. But I do know there have been a lot of upsets. <laughs> That's true. Uh, did you see the, speaking of upsets, uh, the upset over the difference in the women's basketball tournament uh, workout room and the men's basketball tournament workout room? I did not. Why? <laughs> Are they different? A little bit, a little bit. So uh, our listeners may have caught this. That uh, there was one person put out on Twitter, uh, on Twitter, tweeted, Twitter pated. One person tweeted on Twitter, uh, one of the players, a photo of the women's workout room that had one small set of gyms, uh, one small set of uh, weights. Sorry, I talk for a living, but I'm having trouble talking today. Meanwhile, the men's weight room and gym room and workout room was like wall to wall, a huge room of all the latest workout equipment. But it spoke to sort of the disparity between men's and women's basketball and men's and women's sports in the NCAA. Uh, but it just was sort of both fun, but in a way, because there were lots of very clever shots at it, but really very illuminating for the women's side of the sport that says, hey, look, you know, we're working just as hard. Why aren't we treated equally? And clearly the NCAA has not treated them equally. Uh, so that was a bit of an uproar there. On the sports side, yes, in the men's tournament, uh, there have been lots of big upsets going on. It's sort of the fun of the tournament. But um, I wonder, when I was in high school, we were all about it. You know, we were all about college basketball. It was huge. We all did it. I sense there isn't as much of a passion for it now among people your age um, as there was in my day, but that could just be me. Um, I don't suppose, see, that's part of the problem. You don't have kids all around you at school every day to talk about because you, you do school by yourself. 
Yeah, that might be a part of it, but, you know, I've never really been that interested in basketball. Where we live isn't really that basketball heavy. I mean, baseball's the big, baseball and football are the big things here. And basketball's not really that big. You know, yeah. I feel like baseball is more of a rural thing. And basketball's more of a city thing. Well, there's something behind that in terms of availability of space, uh, for sure. But uh, when you and your friends do talk about competition, I suspect more of it is about the games that are also known as video games, right? Mm, what do you mean? Well, I don't know. Uh, what do you? What do you? What games do you play? Like Overwatch and. Other, uh, the e-sports e leagues, they call them now, uh, you've seen, you've watched competitions of those, right? Yeah, I mean, they're not exactly mainstream, but the e-sports genre is now valued at well over a billion dollars, so it's definitely growing exponentially fast, and, you know... Esports is a lot easier per se to follow because there are so many sites that you can stream it off of. For example, YouTube and Twitch and like almost anyone anywhere on any mobile device, on any device really, can watch any esports game at any time for free while with basketball game you know you have to turn on the tv and you might not get that channel hmm. well um there are more and more ways to stream games now than ever before basketball games and whatnot but so there may be something there but my curiosity really is uh if you and your friends were hanging out and you had a choice of watching a big basketball game or watching uh, the finals competition of I don't know, pick a video game. The Overwatch of the League. Overwatch League. What would you what would you be more likely to watch? Definitely the Overwatch League. I mean, again, I've never really been into basketball. It's not a thing here really. I know practically nothing about basketball at all. How many players are on the court thingy at a time? <laughs> Five on each side. Okay. But uh, you've mentioned to me before, you, you do know how Overwatch is played. I think that's just the shifting dynamic. I mean, our generation likes video games way more than any generation before us. And I think that's a trend that's going to continue. Mm, and yet, as we talk about news, every news outlet is talking a lot about the basketball tournament. Um, have you seen any news outlets other than those that are specifically designed for video game coverage mention anything happening in the video game world? Uh, nope, because it's not mainstream. And for the people that watch cable news, they're generally not teenagers who care about cable news, like, say, NBC, like... Good Morning America, like, what's the key demographic for that? I'm going to say 20 to 40-year-olds. Mm, 25 and, to 54, probably. 
and 25 to 54 year olds really don't care about esports, which is why they don't cover it, because the people who watch mainstream media really don't care about that stuff. Therefore, it gets no coverage. Hmm, but it does suggest that there may be a gap growing in terms of saying from a news organization they want to connect with the next generation, so to speak, and the news just in the sports game side that the next generation is interested isn't what's being covered in the mainstream media, as they call it. Well, that is, uh, I think, something that is interesting to ponder, something that we can think about over the next week as we prepare for next week's podcast. First, I want to tell you, like many podcasters, we're using Post by Futuri to create, publish, and optimize this episode. Learn more why some of the top brands use Post at futurimedia.com. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Me and My Teen and the News. I'm Tim. I'm Ben. And this is Me and My Teen and the News. Good night, everyone. Good night, everyone.